Our text today comes from Acts, the fourth chapter, verses 32 through 35. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, friends, it is so good to see all of you, for those in the sanctuary, for those at home. I am so very glad that you are continuing to worship and sing and pray as a part of this congregation. Will you please now join with me as we think and pray together as one community with one heart. Father, you have called us to this place from the busyness and fullness of the world. May our hearts now be ready to receive a word from you. Give us the ears to hear a message from your word that might actually shape who we are. May our faith increase. May our faithfulness increase. Having sat and heard your word for our lives. And so give us wisdom. Give us courage. Knit us together as your community. Give us one heart, truly we pray. And may these words and the meditations of all our hearts bring honor and glory to you. In the name of Christ, the risen Lord, we now pray. Amen. Does believing that something is true make a difference when it comes to your actions and habits. It was at a meeting of the American Heart Association that 30,000 doctors, nurses, and researchers met in Atlanta to discuss, among other things, the importance a low-fat diet plays in keeping our hearts healthy. Yet, during mealtimes, they consumed fat-filled fast food, such as bacon, cheeseburgers, and fries, at the same rate as people from other conventions, according to food services. When one cardiologist was asked whether his intake of high-fat foods and meals set a bad example, he replied, not me, because I took my name tag off. Well, perhaps it's laughable, understandable, or even excusable. It's easy enough to justify a subtle treat here and there. It's the weekend, it's vacation, it's, it's a sometimes thing, or it's just an incremental harm that can be easily counterbalanced somewhere else down along the line, or so we tell ourselves. 
But what cardiologists will tell you, at least when they're wearing their name tags, is that the most common heart condition affecting Americans is coronary artery disease. This is a buildup of, of plaque inside the arteries that feed the heart, and this buildup can eventually cause a blockage in the artery. Blocked arteries in the heart can't deliver enough oxygen and nutrients to the muscle, affecting how well your heart works. And so it's not the single order of a bacon cheeseburger and fries that will do you in. It's the habit, the long-term repetition, and the slow accumulation of one unhealthy choice followed by another that can, over time, ruin your heart. I know, you, you didn't come here for a lecture about heart health. And yet, the sermon for today's passage describes the early church living in light of the resurrection as, as being a people of one heart. Now, clearly, the heart being described in Acts chapter 4 is not a medical evaluation. Throughout history, the heart has been understood as far more than a muscular organ. When we speak about matters of the heart, we're talking about what's at our center, what motivates us and what we care about the most, and what stirs our deepest loves and convictions. In primitive time, it was believed that the heart was actually the center of human reasoning, Scholars have suggested that this is why the backs of people were beaten in the ancient world. Uh, the back was the closest you could get to get, getting to the heart from the outside of the body. I don't think it's right or justifiable in any context, but the thought was that by disciplining the body near the location of the heart, that you could actually change a person's behaviors and habits. That is, it could bring about a change of heart. Interestingly, discovering that the decisions are made in the head and not between the back and chest did not change the way that we speak of the heart and about matters of the heart. And so, again, today's passage reads, now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart. Having experienced the risen Christ, the early church was knit together to live and act with unity, purpose, sacrifice, and action. They took Jesus' resurrection to heart. In a way that was both real and responsive, the resurrection of Jesus brought about a heightened sensitivity to how the people of God could transform the world around them. Historian Lee Schmidt observes that the invention of the stethoscope in the early 19th century serves as an illustration of heightened sensitivity. The stethoscope not only enhanced the auditory sense, it also required the development of an educated ear that attended to the meaningful sounds and ignored the extraneous ones. In Schmidt's words, Proper utilization of the stethoscope requires paying attention to the heightening and dampening of the senses. In other words, pay attention to the wrong noises and you'll miss what's going on. In today's sermon text, the connections and implications are straightforward. 
The first church had a heightened sensitivity due to living in the wake of Jesus' resurrection. Eyewitness testimony and firsthand experiences invigorated the witness of these first Christians. The early church paid attention to the right things. Mainly, they paid attention to the memory of Jesus and to one another. They came together and they cared together. They gave and sacrificed in such a way that they were able to meet any need that cropped up along the way. The language used for giving in this passage is in the imperfect tense and not in the past tense. This all underscores how the actions of the church were reactive and agile. We're not reading about one-time contributions or actions, but instead it's ongoing. The depiction is vivid. The early church acknowledges what they collectively have as being resources held in a common trust for all, and not merely for personal benefit. New Testament commentators point out that property and resources don't suddenly vanish, but instead that the idea of ownership is radically transformed within the church. In the words of one commentator, quote, Jesus' followers use their resources to become a bridge between uneven wealth and resources, uneven hope, and uneven life. Those who have must join those who do not, and those in the middle, having neither a lot nor just a little, must find their home at the space at the apostles' feet. There they must hear the call to offer themselves for the sake of a God who feverishly seeks to create the common." End quote. These first Christians acted to connect resources to tangible needs. By doing this, they held out God's heart to others, and we read that great grace was upon them all. I think it's interesting to point out that grace is sometimes defined as a divine influence upon the heart. This seems to be precisely the case. In his recent book, Materiality as Resistance, Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann addresses the critical difference between responsible materiality and materialism. Now, on the one hand, materialism places possessions and physical comfort over spiritual values. Responsible materiality, on the other hand, is the usefulness of material aspects of the Christian faith. Listen carefully to Brueggemann's assessment. Responsible materiality depends upon glad generosity that is grounded in deep gratitude for the gift of life in all its abundance. In a society of competition among individuals for scarce goods, the pressure to get ahead is without restraint, but responsible materiality does not inhabit a world of scarce goods. Rather, it resides in a creation of God's good abundance. Thus, responsible materiality is exactly a contradiction to the impulse for competitive accumulation. 
The ground for generosity is the awareness that the world is funded by a generous, active God who has made creation as a gift that keeps on giving and that we are on the receiving end of that endless gift giving. Thus, we need not and cannot imagine that we are self-made or self-sufficient. Nor does it follow that I made my money and it belongs to me. Responsible materiality recognizes that we are each and all embedded in a life-giving network and we are permitted the glorious chance to be full participants in and contributors to that life-giving work, end quote. Brueggemann is here naming the potential to participate and share in the abundance of God. He also names the dangerous distortion Christians encounter in every generation. That is, believing that you can somehow live a path different from the self-sacrificing way of Jesus. You see, if we're not diligent, we can swallow the logic that the more successful we are, the more we're entitled to keep our gains for ourselves. This is where the church must always remind itself of what we profess to be true. We remind one another that selfishly hoarding God's good news or God's good materials for ourselves alone is not God's good way. This was at the heart of last Sunday's sermon Although we cling to Christ, we cannot cling in a way that limits resurrection hope only to ourselves. Eventually, we have to let go and share for the sake of others. In time, we must always acknowledge the resurrection as a relational reality and not as an individual benefit alone. We short-circuit God's hope for our community and world whenever we fail to extend tangible hope, healing, and help to others. The resurrection is not only something that we believe in, but it is also the event that draws us together to listen and pray and act with mutual accountability so that God's will can be done on earth as it is in heaven. I sometimes recall the very first time that I ever taught an adult Sunday school class. I don't remember exactly what I said, but I still remember a voice speaking up from the back of the room and saying, now you're meddling, preacher. Now here's an important truth. The implications of the resurrection ought to always meddle with our hearts and lives. The consequences of the life of Christ ought to be so unshakable that they compel us and to focus more on what unites us instead of what divides and isolates us. Unfortunately, I've seen so many people tearing others apart in this past year, both inside and outside of the church, and I'm grieved by it because this hostility runs counter to the heart of God. This past year has brought so much weariness, controversy, grief, and division. 
with the illustration of the stethoscope, it can be so easy to tune our ears and align our hearts to the wrong noises if we're not diligent with our sensibilities. May today's text invoke the wisdom of the church that we might be able to see that both hopeful and hurtful voices have significant consequences, though they are very different when it comes to the end result. Let us be attentive to the right sounds in order to unsettle the status quo for the better and not for the worse. Let us not grow weary in naming and participating in the transformative difference and life-changing potential that the resurrection of Jesus brings to our everyday lives. Living in light of the resurrection ought to drive us to find a way for the love of God to end our quarrels and to upend our grudges for the sake of our common hope and future together. When we, what we encounter in the opening chapters of the book of Acts is a church that is energized and imaginatively collaborative about the difference the incredible news of God can make in the right here and in the right now. These Christians gave the church a good name and a good beginning. They looked at the intellect and influence and the material within their reach and then they dreamed God-shaped dreams for all creation. These first Christians were real people who had a heartbeat that was in rhythm with God's heartbeat for the world. I wonder, what would it look like for the dream of God to sh take shape in our right here and our right now? What would happen if your resurrection hopes got together with the resurrection hopes of others, what could we teach? What could we create and envision? What would happen if we thought about all the food in our cupboards and all of the food that our collective kitchens and yards could grow and sustain? What if we thought differently about all of our kitchens that we have to cook with and to feed with? How could all of our cars be used to transport items that would make the lives of others better on a regular basis instead of just getting ourselves from point A to point B? What if we realized, because of what we have together, that we actually don't need as much on our own? And what if we shared more and went out of our way to seek the well-being of others? What if we realize that some of us have enough while others of us don't? What kinds of dreams might surface if teachers, students, architects, doctors, nurses, dentists, veterinarians, lawyers, chefs, entrepreneurs, safety professionals, real estate agents, land developers, engineers, inventors, accountants, scientists, technicians, bankers, artists, musicians, pilots, drivers, mechanics, planners, builders, team managers, trainers, community organizers, skilled workers, and consultants. What would happen if we all got together do you realize how much potential is right at our fingertips?
What kinds of things might we be able to do if we all got together motivated by a faith that binds us together? What could happen if we all collaborated and started dreaming about what it would be like for the life and vitality of God to transform this community? Here's the gospel truth. These questions are what a resurrection-shaped imagination is begging us to explore. We can join together as the people of God, as a -a one-of-a-kind, God-gifted community that has the potential to enact life-changing realities. The church can still be the place where grace is evident among all of us because we can still be a people marked by a divine influence upon our hearts. Where there is a need, we have the potential to make up for it. Whenever we're tempted to say, there isn't enough, all that's needed is a voice willing to say, we've got more than we need to make something beautiful and transformative happen. But none of this will happen if we allow our hearts to be slowly clogged over time by selfishness, division, bitterness, and by petty disputes that probably won't matter or even be remembered a year from today. Let us spend less time thinking about who we're giving up on and more time thinking about who we're giving something up for. Let us be a people marked by resurrection hope this Easter season, a hope that does not grow tired in doing what is good. Let us be people linked together by the common heartbeat of God. Let us enact a gospel story that holds the potential to bring peace, justice, life, and wholeness to every broken place and hurting person. Let us be a church that meddles in the mundane in order to transform it for the better. The church in Acts recalls a vision for how the church began, and it renews a vision for what the church can and should be in every age. But it all hinges on truthfully asking and answering this question. Does believing in the resurrection make any difference at all? For the condition of our common heart and future, I certainly hope that it does.